Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, tonight uh, we are in the book of Revelation, and uh, I'm excited about the, the scripture we have before us tonight. And so let's start with a word of prayer. Can we do that? Can we just bow our hearts before God and ask him to speak to us? Heavenly Father, uh, tonight we open our hearts before you and we say, have your way. Would you open up our hearts and open up our minds to what you want to speak tonight, that you would be glorified in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of a series through the book of Revelation called what? Called Revelation Revealing Ultimate Reality. Because the book of Revelation seeks to do a couple things. It seeks to give us a lens by which we can understand our present reality as it truly is. Ultimate reality as it really is. Pulls back the curtain on ultimate reality. As well as a lens that helps us to understand where history is going so we can live in light of it today. And live in light of that truth today. And so um, today we're going to continue that series. But what, here's what we find out about the book of Revelation. It was not meant to just fuel speculation, but it is a book that's meant to fuel faithfulness to Jesus and hope in Jesus and devotion to Jesus and obedience to Jesus. And so I've been loving this series and hopefully the Lord's been using it in your life as well. Well, this summer I uh, found out about this technology that is revolutionizing archaeology called LIDAR. Have you heard of LIDAR? L-I-D-A-R? Okay, let me tell you about LIDAR. It is, as one archaeologist said, I can't believe you don't know about this. Anyway, as one archaeologist said that it is revolutionizing archaeology like the Hubble telescope revolutionized astronomy. And what it does is it has allowed archaeologists to see things that were previously um, undetectable for them. And so you're saying, well, what is LIDAR? Here's what it is. It, it, you would go up into a plane or a helicopter and LIDAR then shoots these beams of lasers down millions per second, as I understand. Maybe that's a little bit over, but like it's constantly shoots these lasers down. And, and it, say you're flying over a canopy of trees in the jungle, okay? thick canopy of trees, and those lasers can get through the the different canopies of trees and show you what is underneath. In fact, we have some pictures of of what this can do. And so it basically can show you the the topography that is underneath the jungles and show you what is there but would be undetectable without it. And this has, of course, been stunning to the archaeologists. They said, we are seeing things that was previously undetectable. We, there's no way we would have, uh, have found this. And yet it was there. And here's what they've been, they, uh, been finding is that the Mayan civilizations were way more advanced and sophisticated than they knew. And so they've been kind of blown away by the sophistication of the civilizations. And one archaeologist said this, it's a game changer. It changes what they thought they knew. And you're saying, okay, Pete, why are you talking to us about LIDAR? <laughs> That's a good question. Here's why. Because, because the book of Revelation does the same thing for our lives. It pulls back the curtain so we can see things that, was pre- that were previously unknown to us, but help us make sense of our lives 
and our, of our world. And here's what you'll find out as you dig beneath the surface, as we walk through the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in, the, in chapter 12 today, as we walk through chapter 12, here's what you're going to find out, that there are realities at work, spiritual realities that are affecting and fueling what is going on in our world, what's going on in my world, in your world, in our world together. And there's this cosmic battle between Christ and Satan or the devil as he's called in chapter 12. And those realities are impacting the world as we know. And if we ignore these realities, we will not understand the context in which we live. And so this chapter is so important I mean, think about this. This was written to people who are suffering in the Roman Empire. And the Apostle John gets this vision of the chapter we're getting ready to read so they can understand as they're suffering under the Roman Empire what's really going on beneath the surface. I mean, how often do we look at our own lives? How often do we read the newspaper and miss what's really going on beneath the surface? Well, if you will, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to get a context for our lives. In fact, I've read many theologians over the last several months who've said this, that the chapter we're getting ready to read is the theological center of the book of Revelation. And the, the verse that's the theological center is buried in the middle of that chapter. And so we are hitting a, well, there's a lot of high points in Revelation, but one of the mountaintops of the book of Revelation tonight. So chapter 12 and we're going to read the whole chapter as we go through, through this message. Um, but let's start in verse 1. It says this, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads, and its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment it, he was born. You guys understand all that? <laughs> Probably not. Let me help you. <laughs> Let me help you, because this is one of those passages so powerful, but is full of a lot of symbolic, apocalyptic imagery, okay? So who is the woman? Well, the woman is actually, if you um, were steeped in the Old Testament, like John, uh, who saw the, the revelation originally was, is actually quite apparent who the woman is. The woman, I'll give you the answer, is the people of God. It's symbolic for the people of God. You say, well, how do you know that, Pete? Well, the woman is described in three ways, as the sun, standing on the moon, as I, under, as I remember, yeah, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars. Well, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, Joseph gets a dream, and Joseph is one of the sons of Jacob. And he gets a dream. And, and what is his, in his dream? His mom is um, the moon, his dad is the sun, and his brothers are the stars, and so what you have is bringing back that dream from Genesis that is saying that Joseph's dream, okay, let me back up. Joseph's brothers end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. They become the 12 tribes of Israel, which turn into the nation of Israel who are the people of God in the Old Testament. And so what you get is this imagery that's referring to them as the people of God, the people from whom the Messiah will come, okay? Okay. 
Now, who's the dragon? There's also a picture of a dragon. Who's the dragon? Well, the dragons, we're actually told who the dragon is in verse 9. If you want to skip down to verse 9 really quick, it says this. The dragon is the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And he's defined by a few things. He's defined by having seven heads, which is a, a picture of his authority. He's defined by um, having... Uh, Ten horns, which is a symbol of his strength. He's defined by having crowns, which is a symbol of his wealth. And then he sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky, which is a picture of this red dragon's influence. And by the way, he's the color red because it's the color of blood. In other words, this is a ferocious dragon, okay, that has a lot of influence, not unlimited influence because he can only sweep a third of the stars out of the sky, but yet he has influence. And what is this dragon doing? I'm so glad you asked. Here's what the dragon is doing. It is a grotesque picture. The dragon is waiting as a woman is getting ready to give birth, is waiting there to snatch the baby after the woman gives birth so he can devour it. Is that a grotesque picture or what? So what is going on? It's a picture of this, that he is waiting for the, the, the Messiah to be born so he can then snatch the Messiah and devour it because he knows the prophecies that one is going to come that is going to defeat him and he's ready to grab it and, and, and kill it before it can defeat him. And this is the story of the birth of Jesus where Herod issues a decree that any baby under the age of two should be destroyed. And so Jesus's family has to escape to to Egypt and um, become a, a refugee to get away from the infanticide of Herod. And behind that story is the dragon. Now, how many people, that's what you think of when you think of Christmas. And this is this a nativity scene you have in mind of a dragon ready to, to, to steal the, the baby after it's born right, from, right, right out of uh, the mom's um, belly? No. We, we tip, typically think of like Silent Night, Holy Night, you know. What, what, how does the song go? Um, Rest in heavenly peace, all is calm, all is right. No, 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 that, that's not the picture that we're getting here. The picture we're getting here is that the birth of Jesus doesn't just um, excite wonder, but it excites evil in the world. And why is that? Well, let's keep reading. In verse 5, uh, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Okay, there's the life of Jesus in one verse. Did you guys catch that? The child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So we, the summary of the life of Jesus in this verse was, the baby was born, he's going to rule, and he was snatched up to God. And so here's the thing, the, the, uh, the dragon wasn't able to get the child. God snatches him up and, and lifts him up and um, brings him up into the throne. Now, why would you summarize the glorious life of Jesus in that one, in that one picture, from birth to throne? Because Jesus came to rule. He came to be the ruler of the world. He came to set things right and to rule and to bring his justice and his peace. And so that's the summary that we get. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 6, So then the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of 
for 1260 days. Now we're going to talk about the 1260 days in just a minute because this wilderness picture and this time frame is going to come back at the end of the chapter. So just hit the pause button on that. Verse 7. Now here's what we get. We go from an earthly perspective to now we get a heavenly perspective of this same story. It says this. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. And the ancient serpent called the devil or, this, or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. What this what those verses are is this picture of the cosmic battle that, that, was wa- that, that was being waged in heaven. And the birth of Jesus was like the hurling down of, of Satan. He was thrown down. He was defeated. And how do we know that, that that's what it's referring to? Because it's going to tell us in verse 11 exactly how Satan is defeated. So we get this powerful beast who, or dragon that was defeated by Jesus. Okay, let's keep reading verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, so now heaven is getting ready to celebrate the casting down, the defeat, the humiliating defeat of Satan. And they say this, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And so the picture is heaven is rejoicing because Jesus has won the victory. And, and so these words of salvation and power and kingdom and authority are being celebrated throughout heaven. And then they say this, they triumphed over him. How? By the blood of the lamb. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again victorious, it was like the ultimate knockout punch to the enemy that hurled the the enemy down. And so they are rejoicing in that. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. And so heaven is celebrating, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Okay, (laughs) so heaven is celebrating the victory, but they say woe to the earth, because the devil who's been defeated is now filled with fury and he knows his time is short. In other words, he's received the knockout punch and he knows his doom is inevitable. But what's he going to do? Just sit around and wait for his ultimate destruction? No, here's what he's going to do. He's going to cause as much havoc as he possibly can. He's going to cause as much destruction as he possibly can in the meantime until his ultimate doom comes. We can read about the victory of Jesus, but then we can also ask the question, okay, if Jesus was victorious over the dragon, then why is the world as it is? Why am I sitting here in a mask socially distanced? Why is all of this going on in the world? Why do I face what I face? Why are Christians persecuted around the world? Why are Christians um, right now in prison? around? Why is this the case? And this verse tells us Why the world is as it is. Jesus has given the knockout blow to the enemy. He has established his kingdom. And it is a a kingdom that is of salvation and power and kingdom and authority. Yet, Satan is filled with fury. And he rages 
in his time, which he knows is short. Let me give you an illustration. Theologians for years have talked about um, this with a metaphor of World War II. I don't know how many, any history majors here? Any history majors? I was not a history major, but um, I got this illustration. So if you're not a history major, you'll still understand this. In World War II, there was a day that was the turning point of the war. In fact, um, people would say it was the day the war was won. Do anybody know what day that was? It's called D-Day, right? You guys have heard D-Day, right? And it was, I believe, June 7th, 1944. And on that day, um, American troops and allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. And that day, tens of thousands of troops rushed in. And within the next three days, hundreds of thousands of troops rushed in into, uh, into Normandy and took a stronghold and brought supplies needed. And it was on that day that everyone knew the battle was over, that the war was over, that it was inevitable that the German empire would fall. So what did Hitler do? He said, okay, you guys got me. I'll just wait around for you. No, what did he do? He kept fighting, right? He's like, I'm, he was filled with fury. He knew his time was short. And the next battle was called the Battle of the Bulge. And at the Battle of the Bulge, there were thousands of soldiers that were killed. In fact, today I looked it up. 19,000 Americans were killed at the Battle of the Bulge. 40,000 Americans were injured, and 100,000 Germans were killed at the Battle of the Bulge. Even though the, it was inevitable, the, the, the war was over, the victory had been won, there were still casualties in the meantime because what was initiated hadn't been consummated yet. Are you guys following me with this? And where we live is we live in this in-between time where D-Day has happened. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is D-Day. The initiation of the kingdom, the power, the glory has begun. But V-Day hasn't come yet. V-Day is still to come where we wait for the consummation of his kingdom, where we wait for the city of God. And we live in this in-between time between the D-Day of the work of Christ and his second return, V-Day. And in the, in the middle, guess what we have? We have an enemy who's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And if you don't understand that, you will not understand the Christian life. You won't understand what you're walking through. You won't understand what's going on in the world. We have an enemy who's filled with fury and his time is short. But the victory is guaranteed. It's not up for grabs. He has triumphed, it says. The triumph has already happened. Okay, let's keep reading the rest of this chapter and then we'll... We'll talk for a few minutes. It says this, When the dragon saw, verse 13, When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now the, the woman is now the church. Okay, so the people of God before, were, was Israel before the, the birth of um, the Messiah. And now that the Messiah has been snatched up, now he's pursuing the people of God, which is represented in the church, Right? So he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given uh, the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and swept her away with a torrent. But the earth... 
helped the woman by opening up its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And listen to verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. In other words, the dragon is pursuing the people of God and he's throwing everything at them that he possibly can. He's spewing everything at them that he possibly can as he's enraged in pursuit of them. And yet, we get these two phrases. They're in the wilderness, that God had a wilderness for them. Does anybody remember another time where the wilderness is mentioned in the Bible? Does it bring to mind the Passover and when Israel was in Egypt and what, what happened? God delivered them out of their bondage in Egypt. And for 40 years, they spent time in Egypt and yet had not entered into, um, spent time out of Egypt and yet hadn't entered the promised land. The wilderness was this time in between the beginning of their redemption and the consummation of their redemption. And so what does this say? It says that they, as the church, are now in the place of wilderness between the initiation of their salvation where they have been redeemed, they've been brought out. We have been redeemed, we have been brought out, and yet the consummation still awaits. And then it says, for time, times, and half a time. How many people said that to their friend? I'll see you in about time, times, and half a time. (laughs) Anybody wonder what's that? It's actually the same amount of time as 1,260 days. Three and a half years. Why, Why that? Well, in the history of the Jewish people, um, I don't have time to go into it, but during the Maccabean period, um, that became a, 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 there was a time where they suffered greatly for, and over these three and a half years, they suffered greatly, and yet it ended in their victory. And so when it says for a time, times, and half a time, it's saying that there will be a season where there'll be great suffering, but it will end in victory. So, What do we learn from these apocalyptic, symbolic, almost confusing when you, until you kind of deconstruct them verses? Here's what we learn that we, our experience is one of wilderness, where there will be the fury of the dragon, where we will face hardship, and yet it will be for a short time, it will be for a limited time, and it will ultimately end up in our victory. That's the good news. That's the really good news. Um, I ran across this quote that I just found to be beautiful. Let me share it with you by Jürgen Moltmann as I was reading in preparation. It says this, We as believers are set not in the high noon of life, but in the dawn of a new day, at the point where night and day, things passing away and things to come grapple with each other. I've been running in the mornings and I see the sunrise and you can see it. So our life is like the the, the dawning of a new day where, where the things that are passing away and things to come are grappling with each other. But do you know what happens at the sunrise? The light always overcomes the darkness. And that is our future. And yet that is where we live in the midst of this grappling. So how do we live during this time? I just, let's close by talking about this. How do we live during this time? Well, We get three things in verse 11. And this is what theologians say is the high point of the book of Revelation. 
the center point that they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. In other words, our victory comes from nothing else than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The the way that we overcome, the way that we overcome the dragon is through the work of, of Christ on our behalf. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, this can be your victory. If you place your trust in him, this can be your victory. He says that the accuser was cast down. He has accusation against you and he'll say things over you and say things to you that can be silenced by the blood of the lamb, by the victory that Jesus has won. They're no longer the truth. They're no, no longer the whole story. The whole story is now that you can stand in the blood of Christ, redeemed and set free from the stuff of your past and the stuff of the brokenness of your life. And so our acceptance before God is in nothing but the blood of the lamb. Our victory over the dragon is in nothing but the blood of the lamb. And yet we find out as we keep reading the verse that we have a role to play. It says this, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, (laughs) They overcame. Okay, let me put it this way. They were already victorious. They didn't fight for victory. They fought from victory, right? That, but they were like determined. We're still going to bear testimony to Jesus. We're still going to follow Jesus. We are still going to be, um, be, be faithful to Christ no matter what it costs us. We're not going to shrink back from, from death. Whatever it costs us to follow Jesus, we are going to follow Jesus. And one theologian that I read said this, it's like, yes, Jesus has won the victory, but the war will end through the ground troops. In other words, the people who are faithful, who are going to testify to Jesus, who are going to be, um, be faithful no matter what they face, saying whatever the cost is to follow Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's how the victory will ultimately be, um, be furthered in the world. Uh, Blair, right behind you, I have my two props. I forgot to bring them up. If you can bring them. Awesome. Thank you. Can you give up for my lovely assistant, Blair? I have these two props and uh, they're not very impressive, but I I was thinking, (laughs) this is prop number one. It's a piece of cardboard. I was thinking, you know, what Jesus wants his followers to be is not um, cardboard Christians, that when the pressure happens, they just crumble under the pressure. That when opposition comes, they just crumble. But what Jesus is calling us to, here he goes. But what Jesus is calling us to is to be Christians of steel. That no matter what comes, we're strong. No matter what comes, we can weather it. Not because of our grains, because of what the blood of the Lamb has done that we would then be strong in the face of whatever comes our way, whatever rage the enemy would want to throw at us, that we would be strong and be Christians of steel versus cardboard Christians. Christians who, as it says in verse 17, keep his commands and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, no matter what comes. Um, I want to close with this story. There was a, uh, a young man who read the book of Revelation as part of the original audience. Well, I don't know if he read it. He at least heard it. Um, his name was Polycarp. Have anybody, has anybody ever heard of Polycarp? Polycarp was um, a member of the church in Smyrna, which is one of the seven churches that the book of Revelation was written to. 
And so he would have gotten the letter from the Apostle John and heard this written, in fact, or heard this read. In fact, it is said by church tradition that Polycarp was actually discipled by John before he was exiled to Patmos. And so he may have actually been the one who read the letter, we don't know, to the entire church in Smyrna. Well, I did some math. He was born in in 69 AD. And when I did the math of when we believe Revelation was written, he was in his young 20s maybe early to mid-twenties whenever the book of Revelation arrived in his church in Smyrna. And so, I want you to, he was about your season of life, within a few years of you. And he read this story, or read these revelations, these visions, and he got this vision that underneath the surface of his life was a cosmic battle that Jesus had won, and yet the, the enemy was still raging against him. And so he would have to stand strong in the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony and not shrink back from death, not loving his life so much to shrink back from death, to be a Christian of steel. And he was about your age when he heard that story. And surely this inspired him to say, whatever the enemy rages against me, I'm going to stand on my testimony for Jesus. Well, Polycarp ended up becoming the bishop of the Church of Smyrna, a very famous preacher and, and revered teacher in his day. And waves of persecution came over his, over his lifetime. And we're going to pick up when he's 86 years old. So remember, he heard this when he was in his early to mid-20s. And now he's 86 years old and he's the revered bishop of Smyrna. And there's another spike of persecution. And... Actually, in the arena, when, when, the, uh, when the Christians were being martyred, people would begin to cry out, Get Polycarp! Well, about three days before his arrest, he had a vision of a pillow under his head while he was being burned. And he came out and he told his friends, he said, I had a vision of me with a pillow under my head while I was being burned. He said, I will be burned alive. Well, three days later, they came to arrest Polycarp. And when they uh, came to arrest him, the first thing he did was he offered them food and something to drink. And then he said, would you give me just one hour to pray while you eat? And so he went and prayed. He actually stood there and prayed. And they said the, the grace of God was so strong on him. He ended up praying for two hours. And the people who came there to arrest this 86-year-old man said they felt, a, a, they were astonished by what they saw and they regretted that they came to get him. But arrest him, they did. Then Polycarp was taken to the arena. And the pro-council over it said, why don't you respect your old age and, and why don't you recant your faith in Christ? Because here was the problem. In the Roman Empire, they wanted you to give your allegiance and to worship the Roman emperor. All you had to do was take a little bit of incense and throw it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do and you would be spared your life. And they said, why don't you respect your old age and, and, and recant your faith in Jesus? And this is what Polycarp said. He said, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? 
And then the proconsul threatened him to throw him to the wild animals if he didn't repent and recant his faith. And here's what Polycarp said, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent of what is good and to turn to what is evil. Then the proconsul said, then I will have you burned. And Polycarp replied with this, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour. And this is and, and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment. What are you waiting for? Bring on what you want. So the, so the proconsul ordered him to be burned. And when they came to nail him to a post so he wouldn't try to get away, he stopped them. And this is what he said. He said, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of nails. He said, you're, gonna, you're not going to need those nails. God will give me strength. And those that watched his martyrdom, it was recorded in history, said they never forgot the moment because of his powerful testimony. It's been said that the flames don't make the martyr. The flames reveal the martyr. And I wondered, as I read this this past week, as I was researching the martyrdom of Polycarp, I wondered about in his mid-twenties, in his early twenties, how the book of Revelation, as as this was read to him, how, how it solidified that he would... He would stand by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony, not loving his life so much as to shrink back from death. How that set his life on a trajectory. Oh, he was a martyr way before the flames because you know what a martyr is? A martyr is simply this. Someone who, because it means witness. He was just a witness unto death. How do you defeat someone like that? What do you do against people like that? Because even if you kill them, they still win. Because the supremacy of Jesus is still known. Their confidence that they will escape the second death is still evident. You can't defeat people like that. This passage is calling us to a radical obedience to Jesus. Yes, we live in a world where there is a foe who's filled with fury, but we follow a king who's victorious. So let me encourage you to join with Polycarp. This is probably, it probably started in his 20s when he ended up being that man at 86 where he determined he would crucify his flesh so Jesus could reign supreme in his heart. Let me encourage you, don't let the the dragon rage in your relationships. Rage with bitterness and rage with enmity and rage with gossip. But let Jesus, let forgiveness, let grace define your relationships. Don't let the enemy rage, as it says in 1 Peter, and the evil desires that war against your soul. But commit to live a life that's holy and for the glory of God alone. Oh, what this passage tells us. Are you guys ready for this? What this passage tells us is this. 
is that following Jesus is a gritty life of gritty obedience and a gritty battle that wages beneath the surface of our lives. Oh, yet it's not just a gritty life with a battle, but there's a there's a glorious salvation that was won on a glorious cross, the glorious resurrection because of our glorious King who brings a glorious victory, who one day will come back and consummate that glorious victory and you will experience a glorious inheritance. That is the story of our lives. And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony, not shrinking back, not loving their life so much to shrink back from death. Death. We stand. Jesus, we celebrate your ultimate victory. And Lord, we look forward to the day of the consummation of that victory. We are thankful, Lord, that in between those times, you are with us. And so, Lord, we say that we as a fellowship and we as your people have triumphed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, not shrinking back, not loving our lives so much to shrink back from death. Lord, we are yours. May our love for you triumph over everything else, that your name would be glorified. Lord, give us the heart that you gave Polycarp in his 20s. That we would follow you faithfully, no matter what rages against us. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And for the benediction, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Let's have a wonderful week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 